You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 4 of Turning to the Mystics. I'm so excited to be back with the team, Corey in the background, and Jim, welcome, welcome back, Season 4. Yeah, very nice, lovely, yeah, so grateful. This episode is an introduction to the season, and we're going to have a little dialogue about the season ahead. And uh, so my first question to you, Jim, is... Who is our next mystic, and why did you choose them? Yes. Uh, The next mystic in our series is Guigo II. And Guigo II was a monk who lived in France in the 12th century. And the work of his that we'll be looking at um, is called a, A Ladder of Monks. Ladder for Monks. And it's a letter that he wrote as a monk, a prior of a monastic monastery, to a friend of his who was prior of a monastic monastery. So these are two monks uh, kind of corresponding with each other. And um, Guigo II is not nearly as well known as the mystics we've looked at so far. So Thomas Merton, St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila. And he's also not as well known as the mystics we'll be looking at next the anonymous author, The Cloud of Unknowing, Julianne of Norwich and Meister Eckhart. But I'm, I'm choosing him because, one, he's among the mystics that have been personally helpful to me. And also because in this very short work, it's really a letter, 17 pages, he gives very clear, insightful guidelines for the practice of Lexio Divina and for the practice of discursive meditation, and for the practice of prayer, and for contemplation. Mm. And so what we'll be doing in the first session, what I'll be speaking next time alone when I start this work, is I'll be be kind of uh, experientially, uh, and he sees each of these uh, ways to pray, Alexio Divina, he sees them as rungs of a ladder to heaven. So it's a ladder that reaches from earth to heaven. It has four rungs. And each rung is a grace state of consciousness. Mm. So Alexio Divina is a grace state of consciousness that we can actively choose to cultivate that puts us into intimate uh, awareness of God's presence in our life. And then how that evolves into discursive meditation in her dialogue with God, which evolves into prayer, which is desire to God, help me with this. And then those three rungs are in effect similar to Teresa of Avila or the first three mansions of the interior castle. That it's really uh, building the foundations of psychological, spiritual maturity and discipleship. And how we can appreciate. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through his insights, and I'm going to practice it out loud, each one the way I practice it. So hopefully it'll help those listening. It might help them in their own practice, you know, in the actual practice. And then the next session we'll dialogue about it. You and I will dialogue to their questions. And then I'm going to. The second talk is all going to be on contemplation, which is mystical contemplation. So this is similar corresponds to where Teresa is in the beginning of the fourth mansion. You realize your heart's being enlarged to divine proportions. Or for John of the Cross, a passage through a dark night. See? Uh, or, or for Merton, uh, this infused contemplation into the summit of the soul. And this is very critical for these mystics on how to discern that this is happening to you. And we'll see his insights, how to discern it's happening, and how to respond so we can cooperate with it. Mm. And we'll have a dialogue about that with the students. And then lastly, look at his insights for the path. Like day by day, life until death. What does it look like to walk this walk, you know, illumined this interior way, 
and ways to apply it in practical ways um, uh, to uh, our daily life. So that's kind of the outline and who he is and what he is. And what I want to do here with you is share something that personally is important to me. And um, uh, I think it's relevant. And also, I think it's not obvious. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to share it. We can dialogue a little bit. I'll, well, I'll move through some examples. You know, what's interesting is some of these mystic teachings, that in the Catholic tradition of Christianity, there are religious communities, prayer. And these active orders, these communities, express their commitment to God in a ministry. So Richard Rohr, for example, is a Franciscan. And so there's a Franciscan ministry, the spirit of St. Francis, in serving parishes and education and service to the poor and so on. Uh, The Jesuits, they call it as a vocation. They commit their commitment to God, parishes and so on, but mainly through education. The Dominicans, uh, their commitment to God, the care of souls through preaching, the order of preachers and ministry and higher education and so on. So they have these orders. But what you also have in the Catholic Church are cloistered orders. So cloistered orders are communities of men and women seeking God, and they have no active ministry. They never leave the monastery. They don't teach. They don't serve the poor. They don't serve parishes. They don't actively help with anything. And not only that, they make a commitment to stay there and not leave. And not only that, no one's allowed in. Mm. They, they encourage visitors. Benedict says, accept visitors as Christ. But the retreat and stay separate from the community. So really, they live a cloistered, hidden life, seeking God. And it's to bear witness to God as the ultimate reality of all of life. They bear witness to that. And they believe that by their hidden fidelity, that it reaches out and touches the world in ways we don't understand. Wow. So Thomas Merton, uh, he entered at 28 years old, he entered a cloistered community, he entered the Trappist, the Cistercian Order, and he wrote all of his books out of a cloistered monastery. And when I read his books in high school, I entered that monastery. And I lived a clo- as a cloistered monk for almost six years. So most of what I'm sharing with you here, it was first given to me in this cloistered, hidden life. Mm-hmm. St. Teresa of Avila uh, was cloistered. The, uh, the Carmelite sisters are cloistered. She never left the Carmel. In the, um, uh, Francis, Claire, the, compared to Francis, the, the, the poor Claires are cloistered Franciscan nuns of no active ministry. Julianne of Norwich was a recluse. She lived and died in her hermitage. And, but we don't live in monastery. We're not cloistered. I mean, there might be some cloistered people listening to these podcasts. <laughs> might. Most of us are out here. So when I left the monastery, I, I see, how can I live the way I lived in the monastery, contemplatively seeking God? How can I live it out here where we live with our families and our commitments? and our schedules and the pace of things and television and the internet and the, see, how can I, uh, how can I live this contemplative way of life out here? What's the common bond of our life out here in which what the monks and the cloistered nuns find in the mind, we can learn out here to find in ourselves. Because the contemplative life is not dependent on the monastic life that nurtures and protects it. The contemplative life is, is a dowry of our being instilled in us by God and our capacity to desire union with God. And that's, I, I'd like to talk about this here a little bit with you mm-hmm. uh, on, um, on, an, on an insight. It's not trying to reach some lofty goal that's far off, but how to be intimately surprised by what's unexplainably already present. Mm-hmm. But we keep missing it because we walk right past it. Mm-hmm. See, we're trying to calibrate our heart to slow down enough to kind of see the flow of divinity like that. And I think, I think this is potentially helpful in understanding this. Oh, that sounds amazing. And I do wonder if, as a starting point, it would be helpful to have a better sense of Guigo's life and this idea of um, cloistered monasticism. And you said he was a Carthusian? Yes, 
Yes, let's clarify first the Carthusian order and, and then these other cloisters, and then his daily life. And I'll share about my daily life in the monastery because I, I know about their life, but I, I don't have, didn't live it as very similar. Is um, among these cloistered orders, and then there's the Cistercians, Trappist that Merton was that I was in. And they're a Cenobitic order, meaning they live in community in, in silence. Um, and then there's also the Camaldoli monks. And they're, they're hermits who live in community. So they, get, they gather each day for Eucharist and to chant some of the Psalms. But otherwise, each monk lives in his own little hermitage with a walled-in garden. They spend almost all their whole life alone in silence. Wow. And the Carthusians, founded by St. Bruno, were hermits. So Carth Guigo was a, herm was, a, was a Carthusian hermit. And he's writing a letter to another Carthusian hermit who was his friend, who was prior of another community of hermits. And what's interesting about the Carthusians is when St. John of the Cross was getting ordained, he was planning to leave the Carmels and become a Carthusian. Hmm. And Teresa of Avila met him and asked him not to do it. Would he help her reform the Carmel to more contemplative in East Day? And Thomas Merton tried to leave the Trappist to become a Carthusian. And the abbot wrote to Rome and stopped it. Wow. He said it would be a scandal and different. I think really didn't want to lose the royalties from Merton's books. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and so Merton had a deep attraction for the Carthusians. And um, why, why, what was drawing both uh, of those, John of the Cross and Merton, to it? What I think it was is this I was talking once with Thomas Merton in Spiritual Direction. And we were having this talk about how our hidden life there, like it, it it reaches out and touches the world, like a contemplative ministry to the world. Just as Christ's death on the cross to this day ministers to the whole world, this graced interconnectedness. And uh, he said, he said, but that's not the deepest thing about our life here, cloistered. He said, the deepest thing is this is a place where someone can give themselves completely to God. Mm. On his ordination card of Elijah, he says, uh, he walked with God and was seen no more because God took him. Mm. He felt very called to be taken by God, hiddenly. Like that. And the Carthusians are a very radical expression of that thing. And he was drawn to that, and John of the Cross was drawn to it. So what we're looking at is how can we be radically drawn to a boundaryless hiddenness in the midst of our daily life? Mm -hmm. That there's something hidden Mm -hmm. and reveal to us in a hidden way. That's the very touchstone of this path that we're exploring. But that's why they were drawn to it, I think. Uh, so it's the difference between the, the cloistered monastery with no ministry and then the, the hermit, mon the Carthusian like hermitage. Is it that you just live alone versus living yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. When I was there, the idea would be part of the discipline of the life is everything you did, you did together. So when the bell rang at 2.30 in the morning, you get up for Psalms. It wasn't an option to sleep in. I'm not in the mood this morning. <laughs> when the bell rang, you got up. See, And when the Psalms were over and uh, you got, it was a time for quiet spiritual reading, it wasn't an option. Everyone read together. Everyone prayed together. When time for work, everyone worked together. You ate together. You were always together, but you didn't talk. We were in silence. Oh, my so, goodness. So it's cenobitic. That is, it's a con contemplative community. You chant like this. So the, the, the Camaldolese and the, and the Carthusians, and by the way, the, the Carmelites are cenobitic. But there are, there's also some hermits in these orders, like there's some Franciscan hermits too and so on. The Carthusian Camaldolese, it's a combination. They gather for Eucharist, they gather for, but then they see significant long portions of their day all alone. I see. In solitude, as their vocation, they see it as a, as a vocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, would, would it be skeptical to suggest that maybe John of the Cross and Thomas Merton wanted some alone time? Um, no, 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 no. I'm sure they did. Uh, by the way, with Merton, he was extremely extroverted. He wrote 50 books, I think. Wow. Volumes of letters. He was, he was like this. <laughs> and, um, and so at the psychological level, I think he saw it as an antidote for his energy. 
Mm. Because he was also, there in the monastery too, he was deeply contemplative. He became a hermit into his life. He got to live alone in a hermitage. Oh, I see. He died, in the, he died when he was a hermit, actually. But I, so I think in part, yes, but I think they really saw it as a vocation, mm-hmm. you know, like a calling. Yeah. I'm sure it met certain inclinations psychologically. Mm-hmm. And so when I was there, this was just before the Second Vatican Council, some of this has changed. Uh, we slept, I slept on a straw mattress on boards in a common unheated dormitory. And they left all the windows open in the winter. Sometimes a little holy water fawn in your cell would freeze. Sometimes it would freeze. And um, we got up at 2.30 in the morning to chant the Psalms. And th- so the canonical hours of the day, chanting the work of God through the Psalms, ending with Compline. And so there was a chanting of the Psalms. There was daily manual labor, ora et labora, prayer and work. There was times for quiet spiritual reading and prayer. You could walk in the woods, you could walk in the cemetery, or you could sit in the church. And it was a vegetarian diet, eating everything's in silence. One of the monks would read from a spiritual book where everybody read. When I was there, we didn't talk to each other. We used sign language, didn't talk. And you weren't supposed to make useless sign language. It was, it was considered <laughs> dissipating. You could get proclaimed in chapter of faults. You had to prostrate on the floor, and it was all, they had all these. It was very medieval. You know, it was very, and I loved it. <laughs> I just loved it. I thought it was like God's Marine Corps. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I went, I'm in for it. It was disciplined. It was profound to me. It really changed my life. It was a good match for me. Mm. And um, so I, 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 I practiced these disciplines. I mean, and I, Merton introduced me to the mystics, and I would sit in the church and try to just kind of give myself over to what the mystics were trying to help me with. And so, but out here in the world, when I got married, had two children and started teaching, and I was out here in the world, so I thought, well, how do I find my bearings yeah. contemplatively and continue to go deeper in this in the world? And that's really what we're talking about, because this applies to most of the people listening to these talks. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jim, just hearing more details about the monastic life, uh, it's a very simplistic life. Like the the, there's not a lot of complexity. Even though the it was busy, um, it was repetitive, and uh, and the things were quite simple. Is that sound? Yes. And by the way. It, later, some of these talks, I might talk about Buddha, like contemplative Buddhism, contemplative Hinduism. This is very, very much deep affinity to monastic, to Buddhist monasteries. Or in, in India, where there's an awakened yogi there, um, and, uh, and a Suf, the Sufis, Kabbalah, what they all have in common is this in these monasteries. It deliberately tries to remove complexities and distractions a way to just one thing, see, to seek and find and give yourself to God in the simplicity of life itself. It's a life. You know, you're just, you're just it, it sounds different when you listen to it, but when you're living it, it becomes your life. Yeah. And you, you walk your walk, and in the silence, there's no escape from yourself. You know, you're just there alone with God in silence. And um, uh, it's a calling. I mean, it's, and, and, but it is that. It just strips it away, strips it away, strips it away. And um, kind of opening oneself up to St. Benedict called it the deifying light, like the light of God that turns us into God. See? Did, you, did you feel God's presence in that silence when you were there? I do. I'm very much so, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so what I'm, that's what I'm looking at here is how do I, I feel it out here. Yeah. When you when we're not stripped back to those, yeah, 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 those yes. simple that there's a lot of complexity and yeah, uh, Shunru Suzuki says um, so. He said, you know, it would be so much easier if we were asked to live a simple life in a simple world, but we're asked to live a simple life in a complicated world. Mm. Monks live a simple life in a simple life, but it's interiorly challenging because it's life. You know what I mean? Yeah, because you, you can't go in there and twiddle your thumbs and fold around. You feel like, why am I here? See, why did I even come here if I'm not going to commit to it? 
But out here, it's so much easier to get lost in the complexities, the chores, the projects, the outcome. The, and so how do I keep my contemplative anchor? Yeah. See, that's what we're really talking about here. And, and, and especially what I want to get at is the metaphor of the hidden. Yes. Uh, and I think that's what's always there for us is the intimacy of the hidden. And that's what I want to give some examples of. Okay. Before, before we shift to the, um, that important teaching, can you just, what is the prior, the head of the monastery? Yeah, yeah, the prior, uh, in, in assertion order, the head of the monastery is called the abbot. Mm-hmm. In the Carthusian tradition, it's the prior. Okay. So he's elected by the community. And he's elected because he, ideally at least, he's supposed to be exemplify the ideals of the order, like a deep contemplative. But he also, they see in him a certain basic intelligence, a certain kind of administrative ability, a certain kind, you know, they see he has a sense of contemplative leadership. Yes. And they vote, and so he's elected as superior. Likewise, in the Carmelite order, the nuns is the prioress. So, Teresa of Avila is a prioress. And, and, um, and so, then he, he wrote this letter to another prioress. So your face. Oh, yeah. He obviously respected him. And uh, do, what, do you, what did you think was the, was the purpose of the letter? To get some feedback, just to uh, share yes. his insights? To- yeah, yeah. You know, first of all, I wanna, it's a good time to share the people. They get this volume. Um, to recommend maybe just skipping the long introduction to 70 pages long. You can read it if you want to. But it's academic. It's all important theological, historical things, like how do we know who wrote it, the authenticity of the manuscript, um, how was it distributed you know, through the ages, and, and so And If you're interested in that, you can go back and read it. You can see how uh, scholars in contemplative traditions would be important for them to look at the historicity of the text and so on. But 70 page, seventy some pages worth is a lot of introduction and just start. It's a good question because clearly, so here he is a, a hermit, a, a well-seasoned contemplative. And he's writing this letter to his friend who's a well-seasoned contemplative. So this isn't like to inform his friend of things that, that his friend doesn't already know. Mm. But it's almost like two people deeply committed to this union with God, sharing with each other their insights into this deepening union with God. Mm. And one of the things that makes Guigo challenging is unlike the other, all the mystics are challenging, but, but what they do is Teresa and these other people, they'll, they'll, they'll say a unitive statement, like a unitive insight, and then they flesh it out. You know, they give examples, they broaden it out with metaphors. Um, and Guigo doesn't flesh it out. Mm. And so it's disarmingly simple. And he says these very deep things in a simple way. Because to the person he's writing this to, he doesn't need to flesh it out. You know, they already know. So what I want to do in this series is how to unpack it. Yes. To kind of flesh it out, to look at it, to help us see that what he's saying is something really very simple. It's very, very simple. And it's very like devotional sincerity, you know, and it's, it's very intimate. And so I think that's what he's doing. He's sharing this. He he had this insight mm-hmm. about the life that they live. He was out working with his hands, he says, is how he starts. And it suddenly came to him that prayer is like a ladder to heaven that has four rungs to it, lexio, meditation, prayer, and kind of way. And he said, I want to walk up the rungs of this ladder. Mm-hmm. So in doing it, he's helping us to walk up the rungs of the ladder. See, how do I enter into the state of lexio? See? as a path to God, meditation, and so on. And would he have been taught Lexio Divina already? He, that, would, would that have been a practice he was already doing and these were his insights about the practice, or did he expand on what the practice was? Uh, well, I don't know about the Carthusians and its details, but I'm sure it's similar to this. Uh, when you first enter the order, you first enter as a postulant. You can leave any time you want. In Cistercian Order, I think you're a postulant for six months to discern whether it's a fit or not, you know, if it's God's will. Then it's a certain order, you're a novice for two years. You can leave any time you want to. Then you take temporary vows, temporary vows, and you take vows until death. Mm. When that two and a half year period, you're under the guidance of a novice master. And you go to the novice master for spiritual direction. And so you get guidance in these prayer ways, like Lexio Divina. 
And also, since you're chanting the Psalms every day, which is Lexio, mm. it's like chanting Lexio. Um, so, and you would go to your novice master for guidance. Uh, you know, how's it going? How's it go? How's it going? And the novice master is watching very closely for stabilizing in these humble pet, which is what we'll be walking through here together in this series. And they're also looking for that first um, taste of mystical quickening in the novice, because it's so subtle and sometimes it's very intense. You know, it's overwhelming sometimes, but usually it's so subtle. See, as I say, that which is essential never imposes itself. That which is unessential is constantly imposing itself. Mm -hmm. But there's a higher order imperative of the awakened heart in which it, it has gracefully imposed itself with great gentleness, like a taste of something, and you don't know what to make of it. And so the guide is there to guide them. And so these are letters of contemplative spiritual direction. See, all these mystics, they're trying to help us. They say, how do we, how do we tune into the subtlety? You know what I mean? How do we, like, yeah. Yeah. So uh, this was his, this would have been his practice, the Lexio Divina, and then he's offering guidance in uh, how this practice uh, opened up on the hiddenness of God, as, as you were saying. Earlier. Exactly. And I think he was also saying something else. That when we go to pray, Lexio is all of our practice. Because mm. what he says Lexio really is, is you hear, listen to a word, see reading, audio, audio Divina too, you can hear it, it comes through the thing, Alexia Divina. So when you read the text, say Jesus, the text I'll be looking at where Jesus says, don't be afraid, I'm with you always. The Lexio is where you sit and your heart is immediately accessed by the beauty of what the deathless presence of Jesus is personally saying to you. That stance of being taken by the beauty is Lexio. Mm. And so the first step, so this applies to all of us. You can't skim read the Gospels. You know, you can't skim read the mystics. You've got to slow down enough to pause, to be taken by what's beautiful, even before you think about it. Mm. Your heart already recognizes the beautiful. See? And then in meditation, God says, well, now I've talked to you, you talk to me. Mm. What do you think? And so it's like a loving dialogue with God. And this is universal. We talk to God from our, the sincerity of our hearts. It's a dialogue back and we journal, we write it out, draw a picture maybe. <laughs> so we, we kind of, we kind of personal, we sign off on it. You know, it's, it's in our mind like this. And then the heart is we realize it awakens a longing see, that we long to be consummated. See, like help me with this, like from the heart center. I can't find this union with you without you. Help me. So in a way, he did this, but he's trying to put words to what we all do in each in our own unique way. Yeah. It is like great states of consciousness. And he's trying to help us become more conscious of them and how it lies in our power to cultivate them and deepen them and, you know, as rungs of a ladder to heaven. Oh, that's beautiful. So he's really translating what could be taught as just a method or a practice, but he's translating it into these levels of consciousness so it's which which can run throughout all of life and uh yes like I'll put it this way too yes that's okay we're looking at Matt. let's say that um there is this capacity to be accessed by the beautiful mm -hmm. or there is a capacity to be touched by the sense of the presence of god coming to us in prayer that but it's, but it's hard to hold on to it. To, I mean, it's there, but instead of hit and miss, he's saying there's a certain strategy where you can hold it steady. Mm. See? So the method is really a way to kind of channel or stabilize. So instead of a hit and miss randomness, you kind of stay in the sustained attentiveness to be recept this receptive consciousness infused with love. Mm. And so he's making it conscious as something you can choose to like the artistry of it. Like I can, I can, I can, I can learn to do this. Oh yeah, 
Well, that's exciting. That's that's what I'm really looking forward to in this season because I use your um, the podcast, your recordings as Alexio practice as you're trying to trying to help us do in the way you present them, and so to to learn deeply from uh, Guigo as he uh, teaches about that kind of a practice. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Jim, what you said that. Um, you this this is a mystic and a not so well known mystic, but a mystic that impacted your life. When, when did you first come across? Week? It was in the, it was in the monastery. Okay, because uh, I would go to Merton. I, I, since we didn't talk to each other, I don't know what the others did there. But um, I, and I saw Merton as a living mystic. Uh, yeah, I, th I saw him as a lineage holder in these traditions, and so I saw I was real honored to be like to be with him and. And um, I, I would go to him and say, you know, I want to read, you know, John of the Cross. You know, I want to read. Uh, and so I would go off and I would come back and I had my copy with me. And I just, and so I would, I would move through these mystics and he kind of like helped me find, I get, get on the same place with, you know what I mean? He helped me find my way. And so he was one of the people that uh, I first read in the monastery and, I appreciated what he was doing, mm. you know, the simplicity of it, and uh, and how it's so pastoral in a way for the contemplative seeker. It's so practical, like it's not a theory or anything. You know what I mean? It's something that you can actually do, which, if you do it with all your heart, brings about transformative awakenings of deepening your awareness of God's oneness with you in all things. And he offers, you know, it's that, it's like that, yeah. Yeah. I love the way you say that, Jim, um, that if you do it with all your heart and, and that's, yeah. Yeah. That, that's, when, that's the difference between doing a, doing a, a method or engaging in a method versus yeah. showing uh, up. And yeah. I want to share something, right? It's coming to me right now. Mm -hmm. There's a guy who wrote The Zen of Seeing, Frederick Frank, his name is. And he talks about art as a way to meditate. He has his own. So I took a day-long silent retreat with him at Notre Dame. I was a teacher in the summers with Retreats International. So we went into this room. We were there all day. And there were maybe 50 of us in this big room. And one side of the room was all glass, looked out over the campus. It was very pretty. 50 of us. I don't know how many were there. And we started out by standing in a circle. And he stood in the middle and he bowed to each one of us. And we, we bowed back, went all the way around. And he said, um, we're going to file up. He's going to hand us a big pad of drawing paper and pencils. And we were to file up, and he gathered stuff from outside. And you would hold out your hand, and he would put a twig in your hand. And you were to go sit somewhere, anywhere you wanted, on the floor, wherever you wanted to sit. And you were to put the twig on the paper. And he said, draw what you see. Don't draw what you don't see. And, uh, we, and as soon as you were done, you would hang it up on the wall with tape. You'd come up, he'd hand you a pebble, you know, or a leaf. And we sat for eight hours drawing pebbles and twigs and things like this. And when I was drawing my twig, he would go around to each person and whisper to them, common. So he was getting closer and closer to me, and I was hoping he would approve of my twig. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at my twig and he whispered, he said, do you see on the twig, where the twig right here does this? I said, he, he said, can you show me on where your twig does that? I, I couldn't. <laughs> he said, notice on your twig, your twig does this. Can you show me on the real twig where it does that? He said, why don't you start over? Draw what you see. Don't draw what you don't see. And he told us that one time he was, and it gets very deep, eight hours of this. And he said, one day, oh, there was a woman there who was, she had a flower on the paper and she was crying. Mm. He said, why are you crying? And she said, because the flower is dying. Mm. See? And she and the flower were one with each other in the mystery of death. See, And that's spiritual guidance. Wow. That's Lexio. See what I mean? It's really, yeah. that's where it comes home and sits with you mm. like that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, one last thing about the monastic life, and especially these hermits, um, I remember you telling me that that people did love to come and visit these places. Is that yeah. 
that there was a sense of um, something special about them. Yeah, yeah, people, people sense that, um, uh, like T.S. Eliot, like Little Gidding, to kneel where prayer has been valid. And um, uh, so the fact that this is a community of hidden people seeking God, that then uh, people gather there to pray there mm. in the place where people give themselves to God. And some people, when I was at the monastery, they had a big guest house there. And um, some people, every year was like a pilgrimage. It was an annual event to have a silent retreat at Gethsemane in the guest house at Gethsemane. And I'll share with you another story which fits in with this, is uh, uh, sometimes the retreatants would write the abbot a letter of gratitude. And the abbot would sometimes read these letters to the community. Mm. And uh, this man wrote this letter to the abbot, and he, he says to the abbot, he said, I was sitting in my little room in the guest house, and I was looking out my window, it was springtime, and the apple, the orchard, the apple, orchard, the apple trees were in bloom. And there was a lay brother walking through the apple orchard with two buckets of water. And when he passed under one of the trees, he put the bucket down, pulled down a branch and kissed it. Mm. And picked up the bucket and moved on. And he said, that was my retreat. Wow. He said, I could have driven all the way down there, watched him kiss the branch. And when I walked to the door, my wife said, how was your retreat this year? I would have said, great. <laughs> But another thing is true, you got to sit for a while before you can see things like that. Yeah. And that's practice. See, that's what I mean by simplicity. I, I want to get the hiddenness mm. that, that reveals itself in a hidden way that touches your heart. And if you were walked right past it, you would have missed it. Yeah. And so it's, it's like we're walking right past what we're looking for. Mm. And um, so. So do help us with that, Jim. So we've talked about this very simplistic cloistered life all the way down to complete silence so no distraction from your your internal life from you know the potential of of god in the silence simple food simple work um how do we translate what yeah. what the, what's happening there or what's what yeah. uh, the monks are trying to do out yes. here in the world i'll show you some things that have helped me right living out here and, and and when i would do contemplative spiritual direction with people i thought it would be so this would be things that the listeners can consider mm -hmm. see one thing to consider is how has it come to pass that you've come to be the kind of person who's even capable of being concerned about such things seriously at the level or the degree to which you're capable so if you look back over your shoulder at the first quickenings, very, maybe it was very subtle at first, subtle, subtle, subtle. See? Is it not true that that awakening arose from a hidden place? Mm. See? Turning to see a flock of birds, descend, however it came, holding a newborn infant, giving yourself over to the smell of a rose, lying awake at night, the death of the friend or the loved one, the parent or, the, or whatever, whatever, in the art museum or reading a poet, see, did it not appear unexpectedly from a hidden place? And did it not touch you in a hidden way? That is, you knew not what to make of it. You knew not what to make of it. And is it, and is it not also true, little by little by little, from the hidden place in a hidden way, a desire to abide. And is it not also true, when you're listening to the podcasts, is it not also true, the very uh, resonance that you feel in hearing the cadences of this language, is it not also true that the, the, the unexpected simplicity of it is coming from a hidden place, See, accessing me and you, all of us, in a hidden way. It's never out in front of us to grab hold of. It's never what we, what we, it isn't what we can find or lose. We can't increase it or decrease it. You know, it's like trying to see your own eyes seeing. It's so immediate like that. See? And 
Is that not true? Another way to look at it, say if, if you're fortunate enough to be in any kind of really deep long-term love relationship with somebody, in a marriage or father, mother, sister, brother, grandparent, child, whatever, anytime there's a very deep love bond that has deeply graced your life, is it not true that your love for each other emerged unexpectedly out of an unseen place? Mm. And is it not also true that it accessed you in the, this hidden source? Is it not also true that it accessed you in a hidden way? And is it not also true that it continues to guide you in a hidden way? That is, you'd, you'd be, the deeper it gets, you'd be less and less inclined to find words that could adequately explain it. Mm. See? Is that not true? Is it not also true that any poet, any poet, Mary Oliver, whoever you read, when you realize, I love these interviews with poets where they talk about it. Is it, is it not also true that, see, it came to them, you know, and from a hidden place they were quickened. And then in a hidden way they were drawn to try to write it out. See, in a hidden way. I was on a retreat once and someone had a little poem on my table. I think it was the poet was there. She didn't identify herself. Mary Lutz was her name. And there was a little statement there. It says, uh, it's about the her refers to her soul. It says, it takes almost nothing to move her. A soft agitation in the rain. An ant going by, knowing where it's going. See, So you're sitting there and you see this little ant like, where, in the thing, where do you think you're going? <laughs> and the very fact you can catch a glimpse. It arises from a hidden place to see the miracle of the simplest thing. Mm. And it reaches you in a hidden way you can't explain. And you're also called in a way you can't explain. How can I say this? Like, how could I bear witness to this? It's the same with an artist. You know, it's the same with art. And so this is true of friendship. This is true. And so this is what I'm saying here is that it's not something far off. And we hear the mystics like, wow, this is so deep or lofty. What chance do I have? Mm-hmm. Rather, we're to pause enough to be disarmed by something as simple. Let's say you're listening to your breathing, for example. You're just listening to your breathing in the night. And then you ask yourself with each inhalation, see, from whence does it arise? Mm. Is it not true that the breath arises from an unseen place? And it arises in an unseen way that grants itself that you can't explain. Is that not true? And in faith, can you sense that God is the hidden place that's giving yourself to you, incarnate as the breath? See? And you can taste the divinity of the breath in the simplicity of it. And you can give yourself over to that simplicity. See, is that not true? I have a friend of mine who's going through the doctoral program with him, and, and the doctor working for psychology, and and uh, he and his wife, um, they had their first child, their little girl, who's now married, children. And um, he said uh, his wife came home from the hospital, and and she went she went out for the first time alone and left him with the baby, his little infant daughter. And he said he lay down on the sofa. And he put her on his chest. She was sleeping. And she had her ear next to it. She had her mouth next to his ear. And he was listening to her breathing and he started crying. Mm. Is it not true? See, when a child is born, from whence does it arise? See, it arises from an unseen place. And God is that place. And the parents are smitten because they know in the presence of the child they're in the presence of God. To be at the deathbed of your dying mother or father or the dying, is it not so mysterious? See? And so what I think all this is about is the whole thing, this is what Guigo is trying to help us do, slowing it, slowing it way, way down to be kind of uh, endlessly patient with ourselves and attentive. So if I'm sitting there in meditation and my mind is wandering, I can set a... I can, I, I can try not to have it wander so much. But I can also sit there and ask myself, these thoughts that are arising, from whence do they arise? Mm. They arise from an unseen place. See? And not only that, I can be lovingly aware of my, love, my wandering mind 
and that echoes that God's infinitely aware of my wandering mind and loves me in my wandering. See, see, am I trying to stop wandering so you can start loving me? See, I'm so distracted. <laughs> and, and so uh, we're trying to be disarmed from our own abilities, to kind of be taken up by the intimacy, what's giving itself to us in the grace and the rhythms of each moment. And so a practice is a daily rendezvous where we stabilize it. But as we go through the day, we can learn to habituate it like an underlying pattern. Sometimes I would think of this when I was driving to work in the, my therapy office in the morning. Say if you're on the freeway, and uh, like rush hour traffic. But another way to look at it, if you're driving alone in your car, your car's like a traveling hermitage. Mm. And, and all these people are going with you, quo vadis, where are we all going? See, we took on an entrance ramp like when we were born. We go off the exit ramp and we're going to die. And if someone cuts in front of you, instead of getting upset with them, say, who knows what that person is going through? Mm. Seriously, I think I'll slow down a little bit on purpose, say a prayer. And so we can take every single thing, walking down a hallway, drinking a glass of water. We're trying to move with the rhythms of the presence of God arising out of an unseen place, giving itself in a hidden, unseen way, born and awakened in our heart, see, to share with people. And I think that's what all, it's one way of putting words to what this is about. Wow. Rollo May, in one of his essays, uh, uh, Existential Psychologist, talks about the pause. He says, imagine a high diver. Can you hear the blower out there? <laughs> Can you hear it? It's I knew a leaf we blower. were starting season four today. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that's great, it's great. <laughs> see, <laughs> see this, I, it is, it's the contemplative life in the midst of the world. And look, we're having this lovely talk, you know, being uh, 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 helped along by the sound of a leaf blower. Because you know why? That person's out there trying to make a living so he can feed his family. And uh, it doesn't mean I wish he'd stop. I do. But it does mean I can go deeper and say I'm woven into a rhythm of things. Mm. And there's something holy about it. And I go with it. And so Rollo May says, uh, you look at an Olympic high diver standing at the platform. Just before the diver dives, they pause. And they dive out of the pause. And it's the fact they dived out of the pause that makes the dive eloquent. Mm. If the diver would look at it, all these cameras are looking at me, what if I mess his ego would dive? And he'd ruin it. Mm. So the pause is like the hiatus from the momentum of the demand. It allows us to pause long enough to see that which is arising in a hidden way, in a hidden place, as the very immediacy of my breath, my life, my mind, my slant of light across the floor, the hall, and I'm trying to sta stabilize in that. And then at what point does it roll over and then start becoming mystical? Mm. See, where where so it's it's really there it's just beautiful teachings really jim can you connect the connect the dots for me around this sense of hiddenness and and simplicity and then um another statement you made earlier about bringing your whole heart or like being wholehearted in it i'll share it how it comes to me share it, how it comes to me my work as a therapist working with trauma we could apply it across the board to art or married love or living alone or being old or everything really, depending on what life you're living. Is I would be sitting in therapy with somebody and we form this alliance of trust. And in the alliance of trust, they, they share what hurts the most. And they share it and when they share it, it shows up that they're, they're feeling it. They start to cry. They're right there sharing it. And they're sharing it as a kind of unresolved dilemma. Like, see the way I am? See, I don't know how to... And so my sense is, how I would think of it is just like the pause. And I would think, I don't know. I mean, how would I know? At a secondary level, I have training, like diagnostic training, and I have... I have a set of I have skills that I can. But what I do instead is listen and kind of sit with the mystery 
the two human, two suffering human beings are sitting together in a room. The person suffers, I suffer. And, I, and, and so if I feel I have to know what to say in advance, it'll come across as contrived, like I pulled out of an, like an answer thing. But if instead uh, I say to the person something like, to the person, yeah, I wonder too. You know, but one thing that strikes me, what's coming to me, remember a few sessions ago when you were talking about the day your mother walked out of the house, you never saw her again? Somehow what you're saying right now reminds me of that. You know? And the fact I kind of trust what comes to me out of a hidden place, out of a hidden place. And then when I share it, there's like a pause. And the person pauses and it allows them to share what awakened in them and hearing what I just said. And so the depth dimension of the healing is learning to follow that path together. Mm. And by following together, they can learn to listen to themselves. They can be attentive to themselves, to be and, 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 and draw from it, see, mm. to apply it in very practical ways where it gets ritualistically reenacted in their marriage or at work or the ball. I mean, everyone's got something going on. And that would be an example, but I think artists do this, poets do this. Mm -hmm. You know, when someone's in the deep in the work, they're in the flow of something, like staying receptively open. I love this poem. Mary Oliver was interviewed by Krista Tippett on on being, and there's this <laughs> Krista Tippett shared this poem with Mary Oliver. She she says she's I I was burdened by so many problems, and I walked onto the edge of the ocean. And the big waves were rolling in. And I asked the ocean, help me, what am I to do? And the ocean responded back, I can't be disturbed, I have work to do. <laughs> <laughs> and the rolling waves of the ocean, like wash over your dilemma in some kind of something primordial and vast and pure that's sustaining you in your dilemma and is, and is not dependent on its outcome. And then you, as a poet, Heidegger says the vocation of the poet is to evoke the holy. And then she writes what was given to her. And when we read it, we're so grateful she was faithful to the path. Because when we read it, it resonates with us. And that's who these mystics are. We can be so grateful that not only were they called to this mystic way, but some people were called to be mystic teachers. Yeah. See, they were called to share it. And we're so grateful for their fidelity and the sharing because it arcs across time here centuries later, it's touching us. It's very mysterious, really. Seriously. When you're describing um, that, those responses to when I asked about coming with your whole heart, there's a certain kind of attentiveness, but also what I would call vulnerability because I, I need to be um, open to not knowing or not having the answer or... <laughs> To, yeah. to what to what arises, um, not controlling it, not yeah. manipulating yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Let me put it another way, and this would be contemplation. Let's say there's a dilemma, and it's a real dilemma, and it's something unresolved. You don't know how it's going to turn out. You hope, like anything, it's not going to turn out the way you're afraid it will, but it might. You hope it'll turn out the way you want, and it might, but you don't know. And your fear is understandable of what might happen. You can do your best to protect yourself from that and see that it goes the other way. You can do your best. What we're talking about is this, is regardless of how it turns out. You're being, this is why God is a presence that protects us from nothing, even as God unexplainably sustains us in all things. Mm. So that even if it goes the way that we hope that it won't, God will be unexplainably sustaining us in our darkest hour. And if we don't panic, maybe we will panic, cry. As it stabilizes, as we look back on it, we realize something was given to us in the darkness mm. about, about a trust, you know, about mercy, or about, you know what I mean? I think it's true of a lot of the deep things in our heart. They came out of us in moments we got so lost. Yeah. As we found our way back into the light, we came out having learned things, see? And we learned it in a hidden way. 
when we were so hidden we couldn't even find ourselves. I mean, we were so lost and we stumbled out of it and we walked away different if we let it, yeah. Yeah. I think. Back to your um, therapy example and relating this to what Guigo's offering us, there was that layer you had in there of skills and I know Guigo's kind of offering um, a method, some skills in combination of the, with this attentive, vulnerable kind of um, way of being awoke, awakened. Um, do, do, what is the value of the, the practice versus the... Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yes, 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 yes. It's very good. It's very good. See, my sense of... Say if you would come to see me for therapy, really, I wouldn't say anything to you. I'd listen to you to get a sense of where you're at. And I would be looking at it, levels of functioning, tolerance for dysphoric affect, uh, survival history. And so what I would do, I, so I would meet you where you're at in your own understanding of it. So you could see you weren't alone there. Yeah. And we would join forces together and talk and see where it went. And likewise, if you could have Guigo as a spiritual director, I'm, or Teresa, any of these people, I, I'm convinced first they would listen to you first. Mm. And then they would meet you where you were at see, and try to stabilize where you are. Because what if you spent your whole life in Lexio, never even got to the second step, but a whole life of Lexio sincerely lived as the holiness of God? Because the agenda here is not to reach certain states of consciousness. It's holiness, which is, is, is really love, which is really surrendering to how God's uh, present and calling us in our life. And so we're always, uh, instead of trying to move on, and that's why whenever we get confused, Guigo says, we, we, we're probably confused because we tried to skip the first rung of the ladder. Mm. And when we, we lose our way, we know how to find our way back, Lexio. See, you turn back around, and God's completely right there in the simplicity. So I think, so there's a certain set of like spiritual direction, there's a certain way of assessing you know, where the person is, joining them there so they can see God's one with them right where they're at, to appreciate it, surrender to it, walk with it, suggest see where it goes. I think the whole path is like that in a way. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward to being met by Guigo and yeah. then confused for the rest. Exactly. Where I'm not mad. <laughs> exactly. And, and what's scary is it starts to get clear. You go, oh my God. You go, oh my God. Oh no. <laughs> See, the, 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 the only reason why this kind of talk makes any sense to you at all is that you're odd too. <laughs> <laughs> but birds of a feather flock together. You know what I mean? We recognize each other. And there's a kind of inner clarity, intimately understood. Yeah. So. Great. We're so grateful for everyone listening who can be odd with us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, walk in the walk, exactly. Yeah. Before we close, and I could just talk on forever, this is so wonderful to be back with you again, Jim, and I'm sure everyone listening feels the same. Um, but before we end, I do just want to talk a little bit about the book. You, you touched on it earlier, but I'm sure Corey will put in the, um, the notes the translation you're using um but the book it's a funny book because it like you say it has this huge introduction which has a lot of it's it's really just giving credibility and trying to identify who wrote the uh, yeah it's historical theology yeah. and then the the letter's only 17 pages yes. and that's what you're going to be going over yes. And then there's another section with 12 meditations. Which is another great book, but we're not going to talk about, you know what I mean? It's just meant to be a walk, like a slow, quiet, prayerful walk through these mystics. And so we'll get a good taste of Guigo. So we're not going to look, so there's the, the, the ladder. So it's a prologue, you know, chapters on each rung of the ladder. The emphasis is on the contemplation and then how to live it. Mm -hmm. And so I'll, I'll be quoting a passage and then kind of reflecting upon the passage of trying to apply it in practical ways so that people can apply it maybe to their own prayer. And that's it, really. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Well, a great start to season four. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. You're welcome. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.